Welcome everyone to another episode of the SADM Rams Ask the Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ejaz and I will be your host today. And today I have the pleasure of having Dr. Mike Alman, who is a department chair in emergency medicine at Maine Medical Center. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Alman. Let's start from the beginning. What drew you to the field of emergency medicine? I think that's a complex question. Going through med school, I don't think we've really shaped that well for medical students in terms of what that specialty looks like. I locked out because I like that diagnostic uncertainty in emergency medicine and kind of figuring out what's wrong with people. Probably influenced a fair amount by my EMS exploits. I was working on ambulances back in my teens and was working in New York City for EMS in the 80s. So I still am EMS boarded and still go out on calls. So that probably portended where I ended up. Okay, yeah, you don't hear that too often where, where chairs are still going on EMS runs. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, I live in a um, fairly small town north of Portland called Falmouth. I think it's 12,000 residents. And yeah, I can drive every fire truck and ambulance in the town. And every once in a while, they just need someone out there. So. <laughs> that's amazing. A lot of people that I hear have had prior EMS experience or exposure to emergency medicine, even prior to a residency or prior medical school. A lot of those factors and a lot of those experiences help them gravitate towards emergency medicine when it comes to choosing a specialty. So it's nice to hear that you had a similar experience uh, as well as uh, as I've had as well. I served as an EMT uh, in undergrad as well, and that ultimately led to a strong factor of why I chose emergency medicine too. Yeah, I mean, EMS has been great for me. Both my kids joined the fire department. My son did it in college and was the chief of the college service. It's been, EMS has been fun. Okay, that's excellent. Let's transition a little bit now to organized medicine or national EM in general. I believe you previously served as the president for, for the main chapter of ASEF. Can you please talk about why it's important to be involved in the national conversation or why should someone get you know, interested or engaged at the national level of emerging medicine? Yeah, I can tell you've done your research. I was the president of main ASEF, and the most important reason There's a lot of different organizations that are national emergency medicine you can get involved in, and you do have to kind of pick and choose what your goals are. For me, what ASAP brings is, everyone is aware, brings a fair amount of educational back. If you don't have an residency training program or a way to get ongoing education, ASAP provides that. More importantly, why I was the president of main ASAP, though, is it allows emergency physicians to have a voice. We have a great country. Everyone can have a voice, but when you represent or you come representing that group, you certainly have a bigger impact when you say, well, I represent all the emergency physicians in the state of Maine. When you're in Augusta at the state capitol, you can have a much bigger impact on legislation. It's easy to get kind of channeled into your job, taking care of patients in the in the ED and not really see the importance of that. But a lot of legislation comes up that emergency physicians should care about pro or against, and sometimes we even sponsor bills. For example, Maine ASAP sponsored a helmet law, and Maine is one of those kind of, right next to New Hampshire, which is live free or die, and so Maine was not going to pass a law that everyone had to wear a helmet, but we were able to pass a children must wear a helmet law using kind of the strength of the organization, national organization. Yeah, and I think one of the things about emergency medicine, national organizations for EM in particular is 
as you formerly pointed out, making that larger scale impact of having voice heard, right? Like we enter emergency medicine to make an impact in our patients' lives, to be there at the bedside. And then this opportunity to be engaged in the national conversation through whatever the issue is that is affecting our specialty, we can advocate for, we can lend a voice to from a clinical aspect, from a physician's aspect. And I think it's important to, to be mindful of that so that we are engaged and stay engaged in those conversations so that we can continue moving the needle so we can improve the working environment for our physicians. We can improve the patient care in the emergency departments as well. So I appreciate you know your prior efforts at the state and the national level as well. So that's been, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, you have to realize many of the issues facing emergency departments are impacted by, for example, state law, psychiatric boarding, availability of psychiatric beds, reimbursement for the care that those patients are provided as often through the state version of Medicare, ours is called main care, but, and the state sets those parameters. And so if you have psychiatric boarding, which is one of our current problems, and many hospitals around the country have that problem, that's often done at the state level. Yeah. Now, we've talked a little bit about some of the national issues and state level issues that emergency medicine is facing. Let's talk about the recent match results. We had over 500 unfilled residencies last for emergency medicine prior to the SOAP. What's contributing to this issue? You know, last year we had about a couple of hundred that had gone unfilled. This year we have over 500 that have gone unfilled. How did we get here? So the 555 slots unfilled this year are impacted by a lot of factors. And if you look at emergency departments post-COVID, there's a lot of nationwide workforce issues that make the care we provide difficult. Lack of inpatient beds for us. And then in our hospital, for example, there are 70 inpatients waiting to go to rehab a nursing home. And they have workforce issues. So no one can leave the hospital. So we can't get anybody in the hospital. It really is the, the entire world right now is facing workforce issues that then trickle down and impact emergency medicine. And I, I think that students hear that or see it firsthand and they don't want part of that. It's difficult right now and, and I'm predicting it's going to take three to five years for emergency medicine to kind of, for medicine as a whole to write itself, which will make our worlds a little bit better because we're impacted by so many other factors that are a little bit out of the, out of the control. They described it at this morning's workshop as the system is broken and where the canary in the coal mine, meaning where the place that it's going to, you're going to see it. The second factor is emergency medicine has opened up a large number of new residencies. There isn't really a governing body that limits the opening of residencies. They certainly is a you know a residency review committee and an ACGME that evaluates the outcomes, but opening a residency is fairly easy. And some of those new residencies were driven less by training and education focus and more on either a service focus or a financial focus. And then the third one is a lot of students that are coming through now read the EM workforce report that came out in 2020. And I think that was spooky for people. Yes, spooky to see it safe to say the least. You know, I, and I think it's a multifactorial aspect of how we got here. Right? I think each of those three main themes that you mentioned have so much to factor into, like how the 500 plus plots ended up the way they did. Now, talking particularly about the workforce issue, you know, you, you alluded to some of the issue of the entire system overall having workforce issues in terms of patients not being able to exit the hospital and therefore us not being able to how our ED patients enter the hospital. Let's dissect the, the 2020 workforce report that predicted that 
oversupply or surplus of seven or 10,000 emergency physicians in uh, seven years from now. What are your thoughts there in terms of that? I know it's a, it's a prediction model, so by, by virtue models are predictions, and, that, and there's a lot of variables that go into it, but I want to get your thoughts. You already called it out. It's a prediction model. It's forecasting. Our hospital calls it the planning department, and I'll use that example. Our planning department comes to me and says, oh, we don't need to build a large ED because 10 years from now your volume is going to go down. They've never been correct, and not saying the workforce report is correct or incorrect, but it, it changes every year, month, day, and almost minute that forecast should be adjusted. I think the predictions they used for the attrition rate for people leaving medicine and emergency medicine in particular for this, this forecasting is probably low, and so it looks like jobs are filled when they're not, and there's availability. So I think you have to take it with a grain of salt. There are already reports out that say it's way off base. But again, that's someone else's forecast. And so you just have to take with a grain of salt. I would have to say that the number of new programs that have opened will dramatically change that workforce study. And then we talked about the attrition of physicians. I think the answer is somewhere between the job market and academic emergency medicine depends a lot on where you're looking to work. So, for example, Maine has a very small number of academic institutions, really one. And then we have New Hampshire has one and Vermont has one. So we have a pretty small pool. Folks that want an academic position in Maine, that's hard to secure. Like I don't rarely have to advertise or run ads because a lot of folks either want to come home or, you know, return to Northern New England and there's a small number of places to choose from. In terms of finding jobs in the face of this workforce study and, and people are nervous about, am I going to find a job? We haven't had a hard time placing our residents. You may have to do a little more legwork to get the position you want, but all of our residents are able to find a position. Yeah, and I would imagine, you know, at March or May or June of 2020, when the pandemic first hit, I'm sure that was probably the most toughest year in terms of with the pandemic, in terms of looking for a job. But having talked to a few chairs and having had similar conversations, it sounds like the job market is opening up. And a lot of it depends geographically, as you alluded to as well, whereas you live in the New England area, you can go to Maine or Vermont, New Hampshire, and there's only so many academic sites. The ability to get a job at that location is probably very tough. And that was probably true even prior to the pandemic, and that probably still holds true today. But depending on the resident of the decision who's looking for those jobs, it seems as though, you know, as long as they're flexible in terms of either the job environment or the geographical distribution that they want to work in, there will be jobs available, as my understanding. Yes, and flexibility is the key, right? I have a sister hospital that's 17 miles away. It's our community site. Same credentialing body, same our residents go there. They have an opening that we're looking at. So the jobs are maybe different. You may not get exactly what you want, but that's because emergency medicine is still, still a new specialty and has basically started to fill most positions. Yeah, and I think one of the other chairs I was talking to earlier also made a great point that I hadn't thought about earlier, where you know, emergency medicine has been around for about 50 years, give or take now, in terms of as an official board-certified specialty. And a lot of those initial faculty who had first joined over the first wave of the first 10, 15 years are now in that 
retirement period and just have recently retired. And obviously the pandemic affected some of that as well. So their prediction was, and obviously once again, you know, these are predictions here where it's like, you know, we might actually have an increasing number of attrition in the next few years as increasing number of attendings end up retiring as they have reached that retirement age 65, give or take. So there, there's that possibility as well where actually might have a shortage in 10 years from now as opposed to this predicted surplus. So which would change the workforce. Exactly. exactly. You know. and, and we've definitely seen more attrition even locally in our place with COVID and the challenges of working right now in emergency environments. Yeah. It's, just, it's a challenging environment. It definitely is, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about job searching in terms of what advice would you give to residents who are getting ready to look for their first jobs out of residency? A lot of first job searches are geographic, and so that brings in all the factors we just talked about, that if you're looking in a one specific area, it may take a little more work. We're social creatures. We're driven by family, either gravitating toward or away. I'm not taking a preference there. And friends. So, you know, the biggest challenge for our residents is when they want a position in an area that's really competitive. Like we've had residents that say, I want to go back to Bozeman, Montana or the Santa Cruz part of California. Those take a little more work. I would say the most successful ones use connections. EM's not that big of a community nationwide. I mean, there's a lot of us, but usually through two degrees of separation, you can find someone that knows someone. And it's really remarkable how folks don't want to use that. And yet that is how the world spins sometimes is... If you're looking for a position and I know someone in Santa Cruz and I say, hey, I know this guy Hamza and he's awesome and he's graduating, they're like, well, I don't really have anything, but he could start per diem and work it. You know, it's probably the most underutilized that I encourage our residents. If they want to go somewhere tricky to try and figure out who knows somebody. With 30 plus faculty, they're going to know somebody to get you down the road. You know, the second thing is if you're seeing an academic position, I do find sometimes folks are like, well, I want to be academic. I like to teach. I think it would help students and residents to understand, maybe even look at the criteria to be academic faculty before you make that decision. Look in the place where you're a resident and say, hey, what are the promotion criteria? Because I think the breadth and scope of what you need to accomplish as an academic physician to succeed, I don't think folks always have a full idea yeah what that entails and having that is just it's good background right it's good it's going to make you more competitive to say well i knew i needed this and so in residency i focused on that now residency is hard you got to fit a lot of stuff in those three years so writing three papers is going to be tricky and maybe you need a fellowship maybe you need depending on where you want to go you can get there you can get to the main medical center but it may not be a direct line from residency to to the job of your dreams. Yeah, and I love the advice you're providing there, you know, in the sense that you should use those networks, use those connections, the word of mouth to help you open those doors to get you an interview, get you some face time of those more difficult to acquire job searches or job positions. And then subsequently, from the academic route, looking into what are the actual criteria for a promotion and that faculty track or the academic track in terms of is that what you want out of your career and having that level of insight so then you can, if you do decide that, you have a little insight so you know how to set up your next few years after residency. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about the students in terms of what advice or what would you tell the students who are listening who are considering applying to emergency medicine in the current climate? I tell our students, you will still find a job. You do have to have that flexibility we talked about. 
It is still the best job in medicine, if you ask me. It has opportunities for exploring new knowledge. There's always advancing and more acute things. Stroke, when I was a resident, we used to say, oh, you had a stroke, we're going to anticoagulate you, and you're going to, we'll see how you do in a couple months. Now, I mean, everything's an emergency, and you go to the endovascular lab, or you get thrombolytics, all that stuff is new in the last 25 years. AFib, we used to just say, yeah, well, your heart's fibrillating, we're going to admit you to the hospital and put you on some anticoagulants. When you're stable on that, you're going to go home, and that's the way you're going to live. Now, we shocked and sent home 280 people out of their AFib and added anticoagulation for the first 30 days. All that medicine has changed in the last 30 years. So it's really a great field to practice. If you need a flexible lifestyle, it's an amazing field to practice. Our department, we do not distinguish it. I mean, most people work at least 0.5 for benefits, but I have the full gamut. I have people who are 0.5. I have people who are like, oh, I want to work here, but I don't want to work that many number of shifts. I'm like, you want to be 0.8 or 0.8? So there aren't that many jobs in medicine that are that way. Has its cons, right? Shift-based medicine, we're viewed as shift workers, but you're definitely not in one of those fields where you're on call, nighttime call, you'll do night shifts, you're not on nighttime call. You do have to enjoy diagnostic uncertainty, and the key is the uncertainty, right? My wife is a pediatrician, and she does, when she had to rotate in the emergency department at a children's hospital, she did not thrive. It made her very uncertain. <laughs> we're expert at that. We take all the data we have thus far and we say, okay, we're going to go that way. And then when we get new data, we're malleable, right? We change the way we go. You have to make sure that's in you, inherent in you, that you, you like that environment because that's a lot of what we do. We're diagnostic uncertainty experts. How doctors think, that's what we do. You look at other specialties and they're very happy doing the same thing, you know, Orthopedics, they specialize in subspecializing. You do hips, you do hips and knees. That's what you do for 30 years. Most emergency medicine physicians would not enjoy that. Right? They want to do something different every time they go on a room. Yeah, there's always a challenge uh, depending on when you show up on shift. You know, even though it is, it might be a headache, it might be a chest pain, it might be an abdominal pain. There's still some nuance. That even you know, I'm sure after 20, 30 years of practice, you can attest to as well. There's always a level of that diagnostic uncertainty of. I'm being comfortable with that diagnostic uncertainty of, hey, this abdominal pain, I'm not going to get a CT scan on, but the, and I'm going to send home this abdominal pain, I am going to get a CT scan on because I'm worried about blank. So having that level of nuance of gestalt as well as this clinical practice, I think it's, been, it's going to be very rewarding for the students who are considering the specialty. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of what workforce we talked about, I really wouldn't worry about that. There's just ever-expanding areas of emergency care with, you know, critical care is relatively nascent at this point. I mean, the folks doing it wouldn't say that because it's now, you know, it's now been a U.S. You can take the board in the U.S. and, and keep really coming out in droves. But urgent care populations are changing day to day. Community paramedicine, and they all need to be overseen by an emergency physician. You know, we used ours. We did a pilot where they went and visited everyone who came to the ED with a fall, and they did a home visit. And they used a check sheet we devised, and then they faxed it back, and then the emergency physician looked it over and said, wrote a letter to the primary care saying, hey, we would get a home visit with Miss Jones, and she fell. You might want to take her off the five benzos and, the, and that we found in her med cabinet. So there's always new stuff to explore in emergency medicine, and I just, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, we're a malleable group, and I'm sure that as the, the House of Medicine will continue to evolve, we will as well on the specialty. Yeah.
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bowden, for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for doing this. Thank, thank you. Valuable service.